Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com. And when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. Rachel, fantastic to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to have you. I'm kind of uh, got so much that we want to talk about, but at the same time, of course, I know who you are. Other people don't. So please just introduce yourself and let people know what you're about. Absolutely. All right. Well, so I am originally from Italy, but have been spending my professional life between Europe, the United States, and uh, as of the last 10 years here in Singapore. Uh, I have been very active in supporting organizations over the last 20 years on their employer branding efforts. I've been a big advocate that governments and companies incorporate an employer branding effort into the workforce strategy predominantly to adapt to the need of the new generations. So I've been doing that, you know, very happily uh, over the last uh, uh, 10 years, 20 years almost actually. And recently I have uh, been focused more on supporting organizations with their multi-generational workforce. And I recently uh, written a book, Reframing Generational Stereotypes, which really aims at helping employees, organizations, pretty much anybody understand the power of intergenerational collaboration so that we can hopefully work together and combine our strengths for the betterment of our businesses and our society as well. So I'll put the link to uh, Reframing Generational Stereotypes, which is available on Amazon, uh, but you can just Google it and you can find it. it. <laughs> link in there. Another place. Yeah, <laughs> at all good bookstores. Uh, you can get it in paperback and Kindle, etc. So, uh, you know, this is multi-generational workforce. Why are you so passionate about this, Rachel? Well, I think this is a very personal topic to me. Uh, and the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because, you know, I, I'm a Gen X. Uh, so I am one of the kind of older employees in the workforce. And, you know, when I graduated from college, I graduated from a U.S. university with all the ambition and the drive of a young woman who wanted to make a difference and learn quickly and mark her way into this world. And sadly enough, the workplace was very different back then than what it is today. You know, as a rookie, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't given the opportunity to really do a lot of what I wanted to do. Uh, I remember when I uh, graduated from the United States and I went back to Italy to, uh, to get a job, I started working with an advertising agency. And I remember that that is where I really had, you know, to experience kind of firsthand the dreadful <laughs> working conditions that a lot of young talent, especially in Italy in those days, uh, was subjected to. I mean, it was very clear that I was a rookie. It was very clear that it was thought that I had absolutely nothing significant to contribute to. Um, I was asked to spend my time typing emails and making photocopies and doing endless coffee runs. And, you know, when I asked my uh, boss after a couple months of being extremely frustrated and understimulated to please, please let me be part of an internal meeting, please let me listen into what's happening like behind those closed doors, um, I was actually called in by HR. And I was told that, you know, I was overstepping my boundaries, that this was insubordination, that I needed to, you know, keep my head low and follow the rules and, you know, do what I was told. And only after I had been sufficiently indoctrinated 
by the older generations with so much more experience than me, then maybe someday my opinion would mean something. And uh, needless to say, I didn't buy that. And uh, that's when I decided to leave that organization and, and try to pave my way in different ways. And I encountered the same reality many times over, unfortunately. But I think looking back, um, you know, it's, it, it's something that I remember with a little bit of of regret. So, you know, I wonder often, you know, what I could have been if I actually had been uh, raised uh, during a time when young talent was, was appreciated and when, you know, the general consensus was what it is today, which is young people matter and young people have important things to say and young people can do great things. And of course, we know this is a revolution that was brought by the millennials and that was the generation after mine. So, um, so yes, yeah, so when they finally entered the workforce and they finally started demanding change and when they finally were able to drive this workplace revolution where, you know, young talent is actually appreciated and, you know, engaged and coached and supported and listened to, um, I just thought this was fantastic. Uh, and so I want to be able to work with organizations to make sure that the generations like mine that are in the workforce appreciate, you know, the Oh, I just lost you there for a second. No, for a long time? <laughs> no, no, only for a few seconds, because you were just talking there about just that um, you, you don't want that <clears throat> repeating pattern and you're yes. excited about the, the, the new generations coming through. So we, we caught it, but there was just a freeze frame for a second. So I'm going to jump to something that and uh, I notice a lot in the world right now that... Um, what do I notice? It feels that there's a lack of tolerance for the middle ground sometimes, yep. generally speaking. So I totally buy into talent and people being able to contribute and maximizing their value. And it is all contextual if it's your first week in. You know, that's going to be different to, you know, whatever. But you're right. The the uh, being kept down until you've served your time is different to being nurtured over time and your value increasing and accelerating that um, point of value, I guess. Um, that, that's quite key. But also there is a pendulum swing to entitlement. Yeah. And I'm interested in, I think, where sometimes... And this is true, I think, for every concept. It has its problems. It needs to be fixed. But then if we overfix it almost, it becomes an, an anti... Um, it becomes an attack on itself, as in... Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I absolutely. just... Wonder what your thoughts are on that in that sense of, and I've I've got it now. Where in some organisations I'm working, I'm all about the talent guy, but some of these people coming through have a sense of financial expectation, seat at the table expectation, and it's a little bit like my nine year old. He knows a lot more than I did at nine because he had access to the internet, 
but he doesn't understand it any better than a nine-year-old. <laughs> so I just wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of that balance of, of, yeah, we've got to get the balance right because it can't just be the gift of seat at the table. There has to be time served. There has to be experience. Just wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think that you're making a really good point. And I think that actually the lack of kind of this, this, um, this way of thinking and, and framing the situation is frankly what led to intergenerational conflicts in the first place. Right. Um, you know, my goal when I support organizations and when I talk about diversity is not uh, to be one-sided, is not to only advocate for one generation over another, but it's actually to start advocating on behalf of every generation to make sure that there is an understanding of where each strength is and how we can combine those strengths and work together for the betterment of whether that is our organization or whether there is our, our society, right? What happened, and, and I think you're very right here, guys, that you know, in 2005, 2006, when millennials entered the workplace, they started demanding a lot of change. And the problem is that this was a time when organizations were already uh, extremely tense because of this need to win this war for talent, right, that McKinsey had identified as this key strategic imperative for organizations. And so as these new generations came out of universities wanting things to be different, and frankly, they had every right for things to, to for, for, you know, to want things to be different in the first place. And maybe we can cover that in, in a little while. But um, organizations, what they did is they struggled to adapt, to transform. I mean, I was part of that transformation. You know, I was working with organizations at the very beginning of this employer branding movement. And I was working with investment banks who from one day to the other said, well, let's change our recruitment process. Let's uh, stop forcing uh, students to come to interviews in their suits. Uh, let's start uh, being a lot more flexible about you know what we offer and and how we offer it because we need to make sure that we don't lose this talent and they will want to work for us and this was all great I think the transformation that happened on the back of that was a good one but I think what the problem was is that was an over focus on this new generations and organizations in an effort to really manage to create the best possible environment to win this war for talent they forgot to do two things one of them was to explain to the existing workforce how they continue to remain relevant and important and why these new generations were coming in the workplace and why things were changing as a result of that. And they also failed to explain to these new generations that, yes, you are driving a movement. You are driving a workplace revolution. We are changing because we see it as the right thing to do. But you also need to understand the context that you will be coming into. As you join our organization, yes, you will be given a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility, a lot more training, a lot more support than any of the previous generations have before you. And this is the workplace that you're going to encounter. And this is the reality of the people that you will be working with. And so what happened is that it became a all about millennial type of situation where, frankly, many of the older generations just felt that these new newbies were shoved down their throats. You know, why am I supposed to all of a sudden change my leadership style? Why am I supposed to, you know, rethink everything I've ever known to become the perfect boss, the perfect mentor, the perfect coach? you know, providing flexibility and all these other things that, frankly, it took me decades to get. Uh, and so this is where the intergenerational conflicts 
actually stemmed from. Uh, so I agree with you, Guy, that I think now is the time to actually redefine uh, what everybody's role is. I think there are very healthy reasons why the new generations come in de demanding change and revolution. I think this probably has been the case throughout all of history, where the young generations come in and demand to fix the errors of the past. And, you know, you can't do that if you don't believe that you have the right to request these changes. You're not going to be able to drive any transformation. So that entire Entitlement kind of comes, I think, with the age group, it kind of comes with that, you know, profile. Uh, but it's also important, I think, to understand that, uh, like you said, experience is important. Knowledge, uh, you know, years of experience, um, you know, life experiences, all these things are important. And so I think as we think about our multi-generational workforce, on one hand, we want to make sure the older generations understand how important the perspective of new generations with their knowledge about new technologies, with their knowledge about new consumer behaviors, with their social mindedness, ambitions, resilience, and drive uh, can bring to the table. But it's equally important to kind of redefine the importance of those of us that were there before them and explain to them that we are the way we are because of the context we were brought up in and we entered the workforce in, and that we have a lot of strengths that actually are quite unique to us and that we need to continue to be able to bring to the table. And many of these strengths are actually strengths that can help the new generations uh, actually transform their ideals into reality. Uh, and I think that's where uh, the missing piece was up until today. So what I like about this is uh, indicative to me about what I don't like about some other things, which is when it says leading the multi-generational workforce, I like that. I think there is something about if somebody's been doing something for one year, five years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, they have a vast amount of learned experiences. They've ridden the horse before. Now it comes to a problem. Listen, I've done that before. It doesn't work. But it can also be, I've done that before and it doesn't work. You know? <laughs> a, if you see what I mean, right? It depends if it's yeah. a fixed mindset, it's a problem. But if it's wisdom and it's insight and it's exactly. mentorable and et cetera, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah. the experience is the experience. The younger person coming in, has got that bravery that uh, that they haven't been habitualized. They haven't got the the fear, perhaps, or that well, maybe it didn't work, but it it is a different context now. So maybe that what didn't work then will work, etc. So that's a beautiful thing because it brings challenge and it brings new ideas, but also it can bring immaturity and it can bring a lack of insight. And so all things are true for all generations. <laughs> Yes. And I think what I like, I, th I think what I'm hearing from you is it's that, uh, you know, they forgot to explain to the generations that were already in place, but they also forgot to explain to the generations that were coming in. Yes. It's not that any one generation is better, because if we knock out any one generation, we've got a problem. Yeah, I mean, if we absolutely. just deleted that generation from our workforce, it would any generation, it would all go horribly wrong because the wisdom would go. <laughs> The, the enthusiasm, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah. I think what I'm hearing, and this is because we haven't, you know, we, we keep these conversations fresh for the podcast is you're not, um, or you don't seem to be um, beating the drum over everybody that's already in place is at fault. Everybody must take account of the new generation. They are the saviors because that's an unpalatable context for somebody that goes, yeah, it's not that I don't want to help them because I was new once, but 
you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think I hear you being very yeah, holistic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that would be very true. I mean, I think, I think, I think that's what's been happening actually for the last probably, you know, decade, if not 15 years. I mean, if you think about it, everything that you heard of was understanding millennials, engaging millennials, recruiting yes. millennials, training millennials, retaining millennials. And I think, you know, where I saw the vacuum was, well, what about everybody else? You know, how, where does everybody else fit in? Yeah, I like that. Because it's true that we owe a lot to the millennials. I mean, they drove this revolution. I mean, if you think about it, and I'm sure, you know, guy, you can relate, but if we think about how the workplace is today compared to what it was 15, 20 years ago, I mean, it's a walk in the park, you know? I mean, 15, 20 years ago, you wouldn't choose a company on the basis of whether your boss was going to be friendly or you'd be able to watch your kids take their first steps or you'd be able to have a healthy lifestyle and fulfill a life purpose, you know? You chose a company on the basis of whether it was prestigious, it would give you strong, um, you know, financial, uh, you know, incentives, it allowed you to become a leader quicker, so that you could then be the one in the position of power forcing everybody else to pay their dues. And obviously, you know, millennials have changed that. And I think the way in which they change that is extremely honorable. I mean, if you think about it, and you think about how they came into the workplace, you know, right before the 2008 financial crisis, I mean, they literally watched, you know, their parents, you know, wither in jobs that made them miserable, not being able to work for the most part on many of the things that would have made them happy, mold into a corporate environment that perhaps didn't fit at all who they were outside of work and uh, give up on experiences because, you know, there's very little vacation time. You know, I need to be the first one at work and I need to be the last one to leave, you know, putting all that money aside, you know, in hopes of being able to live these experiences after retirement. In the meantime, disconnecting from their spouses, not being able to really build strong relationships with their children because they were never home. And then 2008 happened. And all of a sudden, you know, a lot of these parents lost everything. They lost their job and all the money they had put aside. So this is a generation that kind of rose up and said, you know what? you know, life should happen while it's happening. Work needs to be more than just a job. It needs to be who I am. It needs to be part of who I am and not just a way to make a living. It needs to be something through which I can express my innate abilities, my uh, diverse personality traits. And if you think about it, they normalize a lot of previously taboo topics like sexual health, I mean, uh, mental health or sexual orientation or, or many other things. And obviously they're big champions for diversity. So this was all great. I mean, today the workplace is a place where, you know, you can at least in, you know, emerged economies or first world markets, you know, have a great experience, you know, work on something that is that is bigger than yourself. Uh, and this is this is fantastic. Um, so I think, you know, the transformation that they drove was reasonable and it was positive. But what I think is that we lost the story on the other side of who are all these other uh, people within the workforce, all these other generations that have in their way led to the same Revolution. One of the things that blows my mind, for example, Guy, is how uh, much conflict there was in the workplace between baby boomers and millennials. And the reason why I find that particularly interesting is because baby boomers not only are the parents of the millennials in many cases, <laughs> but they're actually the first ones that started this workplace revolution. So actually, when you look at the different generations, millennials and baby boomers have, not, have a lot more in common than many other generations. You know, baby boomers were the first me generation, the first to be labeled narcissists, the first to rose up together to change the status quo. And of course, you know, the way to change things was to enter organizations, get to the top of the pyramid through careerism, 
by following the rules and then make those changes from the top. And in fact, when we look at it, a lot of extremely inspiring leaders who have contributed so much to the world are baby boomers. And sometimes that story is lost. And the reason why that story is lost because of the never ending battle between new age thinking and traditional mindset. And I think it's really interesting what you said earlier, because you were talking about, you know, these generations coming in with so much vitality and desire to drive change. And then on the other hand, you know, experiencing this resistance to change that makes them want to you know, kind of cry out and complain and call boomers, okay, boomers, and so on and so forth. I was actually talking to a few Gen Zers recently, and I have an interesting quote from one of them that was saying that younger people would like to drive change and create a new path with successful impact, while old generations want to follow the old path. And then if you take this to the older generations and you say, what do you think about it? Are you really trying to stop these new generations from driving change? They will tell you that's not true. And one of the boomers told me the young seem to think that we have a problem with them wanting to change the world. On the contrary, you know, we feel their aim is good and their direction is right. But the discipline, the patience, the focus and the rigor needed to accomplish this change is not there. They seem to have less analytical mental training. They can't really focus. And also they don't value experiential input. There is value in life experiences, and it's only by us being able to share what we know that they can really actually transform things the way they want to transform them and, try and, 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 and bring them from being just ideals and wishes to actually make them concrete. Um, so yes, so absolutely. I mean, I think it's all about balance and it's about recognizing that the future no longer belongs to the young or to the old, <laughs> but it belongs to both of them working together. If we think about the last, uh, you know, 200 uh, years, 200, 300 years, the, the world belonged to the old generations. And if we look at all the years prior to that, it belonged to the young Our kings and queens were barely more than teenagers. And I think now is the time when things are changing. And I think the future is going gonna, is gonna to be in the hands of both working alongside each other, embracing each other's diverse attribute and really combining strengths for the common good. So I buy into that. And, and I have an and coming. <laughs> I know that you do. <laughs> I wouldn't expect any less. <laughs> So I like that. I, and the reason that I had you on is, you know, looking at the way you talk about things and the way you've offered things into the world. I like that inclusivity, as I've said, and I like that, what I call a full spectrum approach. Look, all things are probably true, depending on where you're sitting, right? You know, uh, and, that, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's not so much that I just say it's palatable. I'd say it's reasonable, you know, and it, and it, it has a level of um, fairness uh, to it. I, I look into the educational system and one yeah. of the things that i notice is that um i have a sense and i don't know what your thoughts are on this that the educational system is potentially failing um millennials and those next generations coming through as it potentially allows them to dictate what it is that is on the agenda in academic institutions. And the reason I'm talking about that is that my sense is that, for example, universities, just take that as an example, are supposed to build resilience. They're supposed to challenge you to your thinking. They're supposed to put you under intellectual stress. 
not you know emotional stress so you're supposed to be presented with ideas and thoughts that aren't yours and they're contrary to yours and uh, etc but it feels as if actually there's a lot particularly in the us there's a lot going on with that um the tail wagging the dog and the youth being able to say i'm triggered by that book i don't know if i enjoy that particular you can't come and speak on our campus because what you're saying goes against what we think and because they're being to a greater or lesser degree certain voices are being allowed to win in that place i wonder if it's damaging the um the generations that sit from a distance in the in the commercial space looking at that generation coming through and thinking actually when you're landing you're in we're in danger of not helping people who are wanting demand change but because they don't potentially have the resilience to as you said to sometimes create an argument that they can't win at the moment to live with some ambiguity because actually the commercial space isn't quite as easy as that and there is a battle to be had and it won't change but yes you should push but i'm i'm just wondering if you're seeing anything in that space that says we're not helping them succeed because of almost it, that pendulum seems to have swung in some way or or am i off track and that that's really not a contributing factor Mm, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of change and transformation that has happening at the educational system level. I think that, um, you know, obviously, the idea uh, and the goal of the educational system is to help help people uh, develop their own thoughts uh, and be able to yeah, be able to spar with people who may be thinking differently. Right. And I do agree that in certain parts of the world, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, we live in a world where it's very easy to get offended uh, and it's very easy right. to, right? And, and I think this is a pity uh, because, you know, and, and I think this is part of what you were calling earlier kind of overcorrection. Uh, and I'm hoping that eventually that pendulum is going to go back in the middle. I know that's one of the biggest problems, for example, or fears that the older generations have in the workplace. When I ask them, you know, what, what challenges do you face as a baby boomer, traditionalist or Gen Xer in the workplace, in a multi-generational workplace? A lot of them say, you know, I'm afraid that my sarcasm will be poorly interpreted. I'm afraid of saying something that will offend someone. I am afraid because, you know, back in the day, you know, we were able to, you know, call each other names or say things that weren't necessarily always appropriate and it would be okay. And now, you know, there's always something that offends someone down right. the line. Hmm. And I do agree with you that I think this is this is a pity. Um, I do think that from exchanges in opinion, from, you know, being able to be, um, you know, open, you know, and some, you know, I, I was talking to, to a baby boomer leader who's amazing the other day. And he said, you know, what actually helped me, like, you know, uh, uh, in terms of bridging the generational gap with my team, a lot of self-deprecating humor, you know, that really helps kind of, you know, bring things to, to, to a certain level and, and, and address the elephant in the room and laugh together and so on and so forth. So I think, unfortunately, when you create a reality where, you know, everybody needs to be careful about what they say and everybody can just as well be easily offended, you um, create filters that I think prevent people from really understanding one another and hashing things out. And I do see that in the workplace. I do see that when, you know, the different generations are able to let go and not be so concerned or worried about what they're saying and how they're saying and are okay disagreeing, uh, you know, they find themselves in a positive place. Um, 
I, I know, for example, from being in Asia that, um, you know, here in Singapore in particular, I mean, schools are focused very much on people being able to express how they feel and being ready for that eventuality. Um, I, from my experience, the struggle that, you know, education institutions now have is more about equipping talent with the skills and the mindsets that they will need to be successful in the future. Uh, but, but I do agree with you. I, I do think we live in a world where, again, you know, everybody's easily offended, where certain opinions are immediately censored. And uh, yeah, I don't think that that is, is something that is going to help people understand each other, especially when, they, when you add the generational layer, right? Because these are people that grew up in uh, time frames or, 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 you know, times when, when this wasn't an issue. And so being able to call things for what they were was part of what you were expected to do. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting thing. This big topic for me is resilience and yeah. that there is something about those, the, the, whichever level you're at dealing with, because actually, you know, if you're, even if you're midway up the, the levels of baby boomers and ext- uh, millennials, et cetera, your context is as much up to the generation in front of you as it is down, which is as real as coming in and everybody being above you. If that makes sense, you know, it's if, if I've got a layer of w- what came before me and what's just coming in, that's just as much for me to deal with as because I may have somebody sitting on the board who's from a different okay. generation, which is really, it's no less or more complex to somebody coming in new and they've got all the generations in front of them. We're all having to deal with each other. So I, I think I, I don't have a sense of necessarily it being harder for a generation because I think the truth is whichever generation you're in, you've got all the other ones around you. I mean, sometimes it's actually more complicated for those who are already there because you know, also being able to overcome, you know, mental models or being able to, you know, adjust yeah. to a reality that is moving at light speed uh, is, is just as challenging as, as starting afresh, if not more. So I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging for everybody. I mean, if we just think about leadership, right? Right now, there's this big, uh, and, and I think it was about time as well, but obviously there's a lot of talk now about the new leader, right? What does leadership look like today? And if you think about it, the concept of leadership that, you know, organizations strive towards today is completely different than what it was in the past, right? I mean, in the past, you know, if you were a leader, you were stern, you know, you were authoritarian, you know, you, you know, were the, the guy whose shoes probably those below you would, would hardly ever be able to fill. You needed to always be in control. You needed to never show your soft side. You know, you needed to, you know, be, you know, punitive when you needed to be. And that was for the good of the people that you were helping, you know, build their bones and so on and so forth. And, uh, and that was, that was the truth. I mean, that was the definition of leadership for many, many years, right? So all of a sudden, I mean, you have the new generations coming in demanding a new concept of leadership. And it's a lot easier for them to become that type of leader than it is for those of us who lived before, who actually had to work for maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and and, and fit a, a definition of leadership that is completely different. I know, for example, when I meet, you know, Gen Zers or, or new talent coming into universities and I tell them, you know that, you know, when I was your age, 
you know, it would ex- I could expect 10 years to go by before I got a promotion. And I had absolutely no indication of what exactly what expected of me. I was just expected to hit the ground running and figure it out. You know, training didn't exist. Just asking my boss how to do something, you know, was an indication that maybe I didn't have what it took to figure it out. And, you know, these young kids, they open their eyes really wide And they cannot believe that. So I think we need to show a lot of empathy for those of us who were there before them, who actually all of a sudden need to become comfortable with being authentic, with being open, with being personal, with being emotional, with being flexible, all those things that we were literally told we should not ever be if we were leaders. So, so I think that a little bit of empathy, you know, goes a long way. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite fascinated by what I'd almost class as, and I'm, I'm loving it in what I'm hearing you say, or I think I'm hearing you say it's triggering off my own experiences and, and thoughts and opinions, um, is that when everybody's playing the game, these things work. Uh, I show you my true self. I'm, I show you my vulnerability, but I don't feel vulnerable. You get to trust me more. We have better conversations. You learn and I learn and hey-ho, we all hold hands off into the sunset. That's a beautiful thing. And then, of course, what you have is, so when it, so there is something about when the, the manager, the management team, whatever it is, can tap into that side of themselves, bring it to the table, then that can really bring forward the best in talent. But there's also another truth, which is not everybody is talent in the context of, even though I know everybody's in the talent pool, but some people are lazy. Some people are not competent. Some people are dishonest. Some people are whatever it might be. And of course, others are full of integrity, just wanting to work hard and do their best. So all things are true at every level and every age group. And that that's true. So there's something about with a often a limited talent pool this dichotomy of you've got to be a certain way of engaging and etc to bring the talent towards you but also at the same time because your workforce is not made up of people that are inherently talented <laughs> you've got to get things done <laughs> and i think one of the biggest struggles for some people is yeah that approach works for somebody that is of a level but when people aren't it's often very hard to then be that kind of talent developer personality type with those that really can't or won't step up. Therefore, for a lot of people, what I do is I default. And I, with the bonds that I recognize as good, we'll have the quality conversations. But with the rest, you're going to get managed the old way. <laughs> Because it's the only way I can get stuff done. So I'm not agreeing with it, but I acknowledge a certain reality that I see where there's at the moment a kind of a dual game going on of offering my truth to those that I put into my inner sanctum, because actually you're operating at a level where this works. But then there's also people that don't. Now, if the talent pool was so big that I could just fill it with people who would step up, would have integrity. If I trusted them, they'd be honest with me back and blah, 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 blah. Then actually the market would kind of self-select because eventually if you weren't going to play the game, you wouldn't have a job because, you know, but actually at the moment for a lot of organizations, we've still got to have them 
because the talent pool isn't so great <laughs> that we can pull them in. <laughs> so it's a very interesting truth for the poor bugger that's trying to actually get stuff done. Because um, I think there's a difference between having a really high talent pool and your behavior is negating that because you have an old school approach, et cetera. So I don't, I, I, so I'm just offering that kind of, I think I, I, I totally buy into what you're saying with literally with tick, tick, tick. But then I also recognize being at the pointy end of the spear and it's not intellectually, it's hard to disagree with, but I think some people believe, yeah, but that's not really my reality. And I wonder if you hear that or feel that or see that, or, or am I, am I being too, um, you know, too unfair? No, I mean, I, I, I agree to, to a certain extent. I, you know, obviously <laughs> that reality is, is true wherever. And I think this is where organizations are starting to put a lot more focus on, you know, human development as opposed to human resources, right? right. Nice. So the idea is that it's not just an organization's uh, uh, job to develop talent, but it's society's job, it's country's job to develop talent. I sit as the chair of the multi-generational workforce committee for the ASEAN Human Development Organization, and they literally have talent development as a right in their constitution, ASEAN. Uh, so I think right now there's a lot of focus on, you know, what is the role of countries? What is the role of governments? What is the role of educational institutions? What is the world of organizations? What is the world of leaders within those organizations to make sure that you develop talent in a way that, uh, you know, people become productive, healthy, happy, efficient members of society and of the workforce. And I think there's a lot of focus in that direction. So the hoping is that, you know, as, as years go by and as people and the governments and organizations and societies start to figure out what is needed in order to be able to, to lead to that, we're going to see a lot less disconnect. But in the meantime, I mean, organizations are taking a very strong approach to trying to do everything they can to attract the right talent as opposed to, um, you know, all talent. And while in the past, I think recruiting was a lot about, you know, academic skills or business skills, business acumen experience, it's becoming a lot more about attitude and potential, right? Where organizations basically say, you know, let me identify the people out there that I think yeah. have what it takes and that with extra support, extra mentoring, extra coaching, will be able to show certain results. And then, of course, also finding and aligning, you know, the, the, the job, uh, you know, and the opportunity with the right cultural fit is fundamental because the reality is, you know, do we not perform? Do people not perform because they don't have it in them? Or is it because they're not stimulated? Is it because the job doesn't speak to them? Is it because they don't feel empowered? They don't feel able to contribute because they feel that, you know what, whether I give 100 or I give 10, the outcome is the same. I still won't be recognized. I still won't be able to drive the change that I need. I have seen, uh, guys, so many people that were, you know, bottom performers at one organization that became top performers in another just because all of a sudden what they were working on, the people they were working with aligned to their vision and, and their goal for who they wanted to be and how they wanted to contribute. So I think it's, it's a lot about making sure that you identify whether you are creating that environment. And if the person within your team is just simply not performing, it, it could just be a bad match uh, and they could so just as like perform somewhere else. There is something here then when an organization says, 
look, some jobs are mundane. Some jobs have, you know, mundaneness in them. And then there's peaks and troughs where they become exciting. I mean, not all jobs are awesome all the time. You know, even being a rock star means you've got to travel, you know, to the next gig and that's mundane, you know, so these things are true. Um, But there is something about, hold on, if we have a vision, if we as a culture have a vibe and a rhythm, if we have things that you can believe in, if, you know, et cetera, if, if the evidence tells us that there are things here that you can believe in, there are tribes that you can connect to, there are whatever that is, there comes a point where actually it might be you. And so it might be you, as in your, you don't have personal motivation, the personal, or as you've quite rightly said, I think, it might be that there's nothing wrong with us and there's nothing wrong with you, but you just need to go and find somewhere else. Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> and, and maybe we can even help you do that because the reality is, um, as you quite rightly say, I, I have, we've probably all seen people fail in one organization, shift to the next one, they excel. Why? And it could be because somebody believes in them, somebody, they can reinvent themselves or there's just a, et cetera. So yeah, that becomes, that becomes very interesting. And, so I'm particularly interested in that, Rachel, is in when, when you talk about brand in, in an organization, um, and that means, I guess, making organizations attractive to talent. And is that what that means, that, that kind of element to it? I mean, I, I think, okay, this is the bottom line. I think that attracting the right talent nowadays is very much, or finding the right talent is very much like finding the right partner, right? Right. Is about a lot more than, you know, if, if you think about, you know, going on a dating site for the purpose of having a good time, as opposed to going on a dating site with the purpose of finding, you know, your, you know, soulmate, I think the way that you present yourself is going to be very different, right? Yeah. If I just want to have a fun time, you know, you talk about the perks, you talk about only the kind of superficial things. And if you want to find someone to spend the rest of your life with, you're going to be a lot more honest about what you are and what you're not about what you stand for, about what your values are, about what is acceptable to you and isn't. And I think in the past, um, recruitment was very much like just finding somebody that would join you and trying to stun them with prestigious brands and big compensation packages and rapid career advancement. And, uh, and the reality is that would attract mercenaries. And in fact, you know, most of the generations prior to millennials, they would stay in the job until they got a job that offered them more money, uh, unless you're talking about boot but then again, staying in a job was, you know, or, or job hopping was, was seen as a negative thing. So they really had no choice. I think right now is really about finding the best possible cultural fit between the organization and talent. So what companies need to do is they need to be extremely honest about who they are and what they stand for. And they need to go out and express very openly, what kind of talent are we looking for? What are you going to be able to accomplish by being here? And what are you not going to be able to accomplish with being here? Which parts of the job will be exciting and which parts of the job won't be exciting? This is how by working with us, you're going to contribute to something bigger. But at the same time, you know, we're not a nonprofit. We're not a healthcare company. We're not going to be able to perhaps drive all the change that you wish to see in the world. And I think what happens when companies are honest about who they are is they are, number one, generally appreciated by the entire talent pool because what, you know what, at the end of the day, I appreciate this organization being honest about who they are and telling to me and talking to me and explaining yeah. to me what's that in it's hard world. and it always will be. So yeah. but you knew that but when you came, right? Like, yeah. to me, then yeah. 
I'm the person that's going to continue, that's going to show interest, that's going to come in and, 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 you know, join your recruitment process and go down your funnel and, and, you know, eventually hopefully get a job with you. So I think that's the point. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, organizations need to figure out what they are. They need to figure out what they stand for. They need to understand what type of talent are they looking to recruit. And then they need to understand how to communicate to the, that talent so that they attract people that are more likely to align with their vision, to align with their working environment, to align with what's expected and what's not expected. And when that happens, uh, there's a lot less likelihood that you're going to find dissatisfaction on either side, right? Either the company that says, you know, well, we got this talent and guess what? They don't really fit our corporate culture. And as a result, they're not performing. Or on the other hand, look at this organization. They promised me all these things. And then I join and you know, I'm just stuck on menial tasks and I don't have any of the support, the training or the whatever it is that they promised me. Um, and, and that makes a difference because when organizations manage to identify the right cultural fit for the organization, it results in a workforce that is a lot more engaged. And as a result, a lot more productive, as a result, a lot more effective. And, you know, that impacts the bottom line. So, so this is where I think employer branding comes in. And this is where it's so important. Uh, it's not just about broadcasting how great you are as a place to work, but it's about really being sure that you know who you are and, and sending out the right message so that you can attract the right people. And, and those are the people that are likely to be able to grow with you. So the greater the connection to the truth of what the organization is, then the greater, I guess, in some respects, the ownership and responsibility to come with the person coming in to have paid attention to that and made those connections. You know, if we said this bit's great fun, you'll love this. This can this can be really hard and it drives people bonkers. It doesn't matter. But if if you if you offer the the ultimate truth of your environment, your team, your role, then actually there's a lot more maybe adaptability in the person because there's no surprises. That's what I knew I was getting into. I knew that would be hard. I knew that would, I expect that to be, you know, whatever that is. So there's something there about honesty and transparency and not putting on a, not putting on a, a, a kind of a, what a, a corporate caricature of, you know, Hey, we're all fun and it's all brilliant. And, uh, all that kind yeah. of stuff. So, I mean, the, the cost, yeah. you know, that an organization has to undertake to just yeah. deal with the fact that they hire the wrong people and these people don't stay for one reason or another, it's just too big. You know, right now, I think, I mean, and, and, and this is something that, you know, the millennials helped us understand as well. I mean, you know, 15, 20 years ago, every single investment bank was going after the same exact person, right? Because they were all looking for the Ivy League with a 4.0 GPA, with an internship at organization A, B, or C, you know, with this type of personality. And then actually organizations started to realize that, you know what, like we may, you know, we may be in the same industry, but we may not necessarily all be looking for the right people because there's a lot more to talent than just, you know, their academic skills or you know, their business acumen, you know, are they a fit for our environment? Are they a fit for our organization? And that's when all of a sudden, you know, this whole concept of life careerism became a big thing where companies started to focus on what is the personality 
of the talent that I'm talking to and are they the right fit for my organization? And, uh, and when that happens, I mean, I think, I think, you know, you're less likely to find yourself in that situation, but then there's a but here. And this is where I think the multi-generational workforce uh, becomes important and being able to lead the multi-generational workforce um, successfully is, is critical. You could be an organization that has an extremely inspired CEO. You could go out and have the best employer brand, the strongest employer brand. You may have looked, you know, internally to identify what you stand for, what you're offering and so on and so forth. But if you go out and you promise talent that once they come inside your organization, they're going to be embraced, they're going to be empowered, they're going to be understood, you know, they're going to work in an environment that values their contribution. But the workforce is not up to date. And for example, you are dealing with a number of you know older generations who just don't understand and we need to cut these people a slack it may not be because they don't want to be flexible nice or understanding it may be because it's so far from what they're used to that they don't know then all of a sudden you have a problem so this is why organizations now come to me and say okay how do we make sure that the promise that we make to these candidates is something we can follow through and the way to be able to do that is to go internally to your organization bring your multi-generational workforce together and explain to one another, the, you know, where each other's behaviors, mindsets, expectations, modi operandi, where all this stuff comes from. Because when you do that, when you create that cross-generational awareness across the entire organization, it becomes a lot easier to not be disappointed. I, for example, one thing I do quite frequently uh, is I go within organizations and when they're about to hire Gen Zers or new generations for their, for example, graduate programs or their internship programs, I do a session with these kids about understanding your multi-generational colleagues. And this basically says, this is who you are and this is why you're different. And we understand that you're different, but these are the other generations. These are the colleagues that you will be working alongside. And this is how they are different from you. And let me take you back in time to what work was like for a baby boomer in their 20s who just joined an organization. What were the behavioral norms? What did the office look like? What did leadership mean? What was allowed and what they, was not telling, allowed? They fought a battle for you here. You're, yes, you know, they, you know you, understand yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, did you know this about this generation? Do you know that, you know, women have equal rights because they spearheaded that movement? Do you understand that? And then, you know, let's do the same with Gen X. You know, understand that, you know, for example, I'm a Gen X and I love to tell this story, Guy. When I first entered the workforce, the first lesson my father gave me as I was graduating was never trust anybody at work. Never befriend anybody. Everybody's a possible competitor. Everybody's out to get that same job. Everybody's after that same promotion. Everybody's after the boss's favor. Remember that no friendship is going to save you from being kicked to the curb. If all of a sudden you're no longer useful, you know, so keep your personal personal. Never give people a chance to bite you back somehow. Keep the professional professional and always play the part. And so when the young generations meet me in the workplace and perhaps they think they see that I'm not as comfortable mingling after work or, you know, I prefer to be done with my job and then go out with my friends or my family, they automatically think that, look, she's a Gen Xer, she's self-important. She cannot, she doesn't know how to be authentic. You know, she doesn't know, she doesn't want to stoop to our level. In reality, 
I'm frankly terrified because I am not comfortable. I'm outside my comfort zone. I don't know to what extent it's okay for me to be me and to what extent it's not. So I think, you know, being able to educate these young generations coming in about exactly the context behind the behaviors helps them approach uh, their managers with a lot more empathy, a lot more lenience, a lot more understanding. So again, when their boss turns their eye because they're talking about when they're going to get the next promotion, it's not because these people don't want to see me grow and thrive. It's because during their time, you know, this is something that would happen after 10 years and they're still trying to get used to it. And then what I do is I do the same thing with the managers. So, you know, I have a session with them to say, hey, this is the new generation coming in. And just so you know, this is why the, uh, they are the way they are. They're everything but strawberries. This is what is worrying them. This is why they have these priorities. This is why it's important for them, you know, to drive significant impact in a short period of time. It's not because they're entitled, but because they feel the world's coming to an end. And somehow it's their responsibility to fix it. So when you see this behavior, help them, you know, empower them, help them understand. And, and, and so when you, when, you, when you provide this perspective, all of a sudden, the likelihood that there's going to be tension decreases significantly. The satisfaction around the program, you know, increases significantly. So frankly, you know, a lot of times what's keeping us back is just the fact that we know very little about each other. 97% of employees across generations, Guy, admit to knowing very little or nothing at all about the context that shape the mindset and the behaviors of their multi-generational colleagues. So that's where the negative stereotypes types come in. I mean, this is not, they're not really, you know, these are not really characteristics of the different generations, but it's just how we interpret behaviors that we do not understand and that we do not have the tools to understand. And so we interpret them based on what we know. And, and that leads to this confirmation bias. But when you do help generations understand each other, then, um, then, you know, the sky's the limit. That's really when you see the magic happen. And companies are realizing that and that's where they're, you know, focusing on collaborative decision making and two way mentoring and providing opportunities for generations once they've understood each other to then really experience what it's like to work together, relying on each other's expertise as opposed to age or experience. So. I'm going to bring us to a close, uh, <laughs> not because I want to because um, I want to spend the, the next week talking to you, but apparently you'll have work to do and me probably too. So uh, a couple of things I want to note. First of all, I, you know, I do these podcasts and I, I, said, I often say this, sometimes people are a little bit one-dimensional. They've got one thing to say and I kind of sit here going, mm, yeah, all right. What I really noticed, Rachel, is you have a depth of um, thought on this that is going way beyond what we've got time for here I, I pick up on that and I get it and it's an it can go on for literally days yeah right? exactly and that's a beautiful thing because I sense it uh and you know it's uh, you know I have a sense of you sort of pausing to think about what you're going to offer because obviously you know the toolbox is vast so I'm picking up on that and that's that's beautiful because I like and I respect that and it's it, it's 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 great to see so I just want to acknowledge that on a personal level that I I, I see that and your passion um if people I, I will put it in the um in the links, but just if people want to reach out to you, Rachel, what's the best way of them doing that? The best way is, well, I'm very, very active on LinkedIn. So they can always find me there and I'm happy to connect and, and brainstorm and, and so on. And then also through my website, uh, xyzatwork.com. 
And uh, there they can find a lot of research, uh, proprietary research, thought leadership. You know, our great podcast will be there as well for them to, to, to hear and, and, and others and so on. So, yes, I would say LinkedIn and through xyzatwork.com. And just for those of you on my side of the pond, that's XYZ at work. Uh, XYZ. <laughs> So Let's just, be agile here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I love what I've heard. I, I, I like this holistic approach. I, I have a sense, and I particularly like the educational element of, you know, if we give you that information about the generation around you. What's interesting is a trigger for those generations that are coming in. I'm actually sure then that there are insights for those that are already in place about the generations that are in already there in front of them, you know, exactly. which Absolutely. is quite interesting. I imagine that also yeah, happens. And, uh, and, and I think that's great. So go on, sorry. No. And, and, and there's one more thing that if, if you allow me to, to say something, I, I would love to end with something for our listeners because, you know, there's a rising number of articles and, you know, um, posts uh, recently about, you know, generations don't really exist. Let's stop talking about generations. Generational diversity is not real. Um, you know, we're all the same. And I think we need to be very cautious of this because by, by making these statements, even though I'm sure, you know, whoever, whoever says this means well, we're doing more harm than good because we are denying the fact that we are unique. And we are also denying that the fact that we do have experiences uh, that actually have shaped us. So I always get this question after every, you know, engagement, you know, there's always someone that says, but why are we talking about generations at all? Aren't we all the same? Isn't it time to stop separating us and classifying us? And I just want to say that denying generational diversity is denying what makes us unique instead of embracing it. You know, the context, the socioeconomic reality, the way the work, what work was like, the world was right, even pop culture, technology, you know, everything that was there as we were being shaped as humans and as members of the workforce has inevitably had impact into how we see the workforce and the world. And I think instead of discounting it, trying to understand it, trying to contextualize it um, is actually what allows us to be appreciative of those differences, appreciative of those experiences, and then really understand where it is that we can come in to cover each other's blind spots. So again, you know, it's not about denying the existence of generational diversity, but about embracing it. Well, as you it makes you stronger. Yeah, and I get it. And, you know, so I've just written down here individual characteristics and traits and generational context. It's, it's not, it's not an either or. So, you know, you, you have your personality trait, you have your character type, you have how your mum and dad raised you or didn't, or, and then you've got the society that you've grown in, in, in up in, etc. But I think what I find interesting about that is, and I think I'm hearing you say it, it's a portal to understanding, not a reason to excuse. And I think that's what I find quite interesting. It's like somebody says, well, I'm a Sagittarius. Well, yeah, but that's, <laughs> 
that might be true, but it's not an excuse for you behaving like that. Well, I have that exactly. psych- I have that profile, that psychometric profile. Yeah, but it's not an excuse for bad behaviour. Well, I'm from this generation, so yeah, but it's not an excuse to not pay interest to people coming up or. Yeah, but you know yeah. what, guy? But that's the reason why stereotypes are important. Right. I mean, negative stereotypes. Obviously, nobody wants to, you know, be boxed, and I get that. But stereotypes as a context-setting tools, they are important because yes. not only. They help us kind of, I mean, they also help us understand how we are perceived, you know, and I make this example in my book, you know, I'm Italian, right? And in many, many ways, I fit this stereotypical, you know, example of an Italian. I am loud, you know, I use my hands a lot. I get overly passionate. And while this is not an excuse for me to be this way, you know, being able to understand that this is how people experience me does give me a choice to tone down some of those behaviors that perhaps don't gel very well with people that are different or come from a different context. So if we use stereotypes, not as a negative construct, but as a context setting tool, as a way that helps us understand more about those around us, but also about ourselves and how we could potentially be perceived, then what it does, it ignites that need, that desire to be understood and to understand. And I think once you have that, then, you know, all of a sudden the negative stereotype just melts away. And what is left is just, you know, beautiful differences, differences that, like I said, they do make us stronger. They don't, they don't take anything away from the collective. They add to it. I love that. And I put here, I've got to make notes as I go through these things, um, but a characteri- <laughs> a characterization of a culture or a personality type or whatever it is, doesn't need to be a caricature. Exactly. And, and I think that's right. You know, of course we want to be different. We want to not be different, but we, we need to have our individuality and our personalities. And if, if I was brought up in Miami, I'm going to be, that will have an impact on me versus if I was brought up in Iceland, those things are going to be true but if there is then a caricature that is the worst version of those exactly italians and speedos with mandolins you know i'm not very much into that but italian women being you know overly dramatic at times and loud and passionate and sometimes appearing unreasonable i have to admit it's true (laughs) yeah but that's okay isn't it because you know it's the yeah there is a but like i said and you know what the thing is is most people understand that they can be a little bit more tolerant of my behavior because they understand that it comes from a cultural context that was raised and at the same time i can be a little bit more careful and conscious about it as i said trying to tone it down to you know kind of meet the other person in the middle so like i said stereotypes don't have to be a negative thing and this is what i wanted to do with my book which of course is titled reframing generational stereotypes for a reason and not removing or dismissing or erasing generational stereotypes i love it Okay, listen, uh, I'm going to press the stop button, stay on just for two moments, just to make sure that everything's worked, because uh, I don't want to have to do this again. <laughs> and I want to do, but on a different, on a different topic. Not on, not on this. So bear with me. And uh, from me, though, to you, and I think anybody listening, your passion, your insight, and your, your intelligence around this actually is greatly valued. So thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed thank it. Thank you so much for having me. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes. Also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching, team effectiveness and changing culture. 
Oh, and of course, you can buy my book, Living Brave Leadership, on Amazon. So, on that note, see you soon.